WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org online. Programming note, uh, Deadline NYC with Tom Robbins will be back on the air next Monday at 5 p.m. It is now almost two minutes past 6 p.m. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News coming up. Good evening. A protest shuts down the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Highway on the east side of Manhattan today, the FDR Drive, as we call it. Uh, They were protesting what they say is a assault on thousand a thousand trees in the park and the upcoming United Nations climate conference. And we talk with Jasmine, a Howard University student on strike as she uh, and other students complain about uh, unbearable conditions in the dormitories at one of the nation's oldest historically black colleges. And, uh, we today also is marks the day 50 years since China was admitted to the United Nations. We speak about nuclear weapons and the JFK assassination documents. They've been delayed yet another time. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Monday, October 25th, 2021. Chanting Save East River Park, climate change activists blocked traffic on the FDR Drive for about an hour today around noon. Two rows of protesters, about a dozen in all, were sitting on the FDR Drive's northbound lane just south of the Corlier's Hook pedestrian bridge. They also lay down on their backs on the highway. Arms were linked together through plastic PVC tubes. Police took electric saws to the tubing, and it took a while to cut through. The protest was not organized by local organizations, East River Park Action or 1,000 Trees, 1,000 People, which, been oppo- which have been opposing the city's plan to level the 60-acre park, cutting down 1,000 trees and raising the height of the park by nearly 10 feet as part of a unpopular flood control project. The protest was carried out by the group Extinction Rebellion as part of a week of protests in the run-up to the COP26 United Nations Climate Change Conference starting October 31st. A local organizer told reporters the Extinction Rebellion protester didn't know, protesters didn't really know about the fight to save East River Park, but after some on-the-spot discussions, took up the chant, Save East River Park. A protester named Kat then addressed the East River Park issue. They could put a price on oxygen. Yep. They would, yep. and they do already, because where do the live in the places with the worst air quality and east river park is the only lung of that area people that live in the projects there that's the only place that they can go to for free spend time with their families in some nature right because this whole city was built on the destruction of an entire ecosystem and the water is coming back for us to tell us who's boss and if we cannot 
respect nature, nature is going to make us respect it. Look what's happening in California. And that is a protester named Cat today at East River Park. Monday was slated that today as the first day contractors would start operations part of the park as part of the park elevating project on November 1st fencing is scheduled to go up around most of the park's tennis courts a couple reportedly will be left open and also the bathrooms will be closed uh, next month the mixed use bike path that runs along the length of the park's eastern edge along the river is slated to be closed down and remain closed through 2026. The Extinction Rebellion protesters tweeted an apology to drivers inconvenienced by their action. It said, Dear commuters, we are interrupting traffic this morning not to annoy you, but to force the public to confront the true dangers of unchecked climate change. If we don't act today, if the President of the United States doesn't act today, New York City will be underwater by 2100. It's a matter of life and death. Meanwhile, the subject of the call to do something about climate change. President Joe Biden was in New Jersey, not far away, to promote his Build Back Better plan. He spoke about the reality of climate change, its devastating effect on the state. He also decried America's lack of infrastructure development and explained from his own experience why a child tax credit was necessary to bring kids out of poverty. Also extend historic middle class tax cuts for parents by expanding the child care tax credit. Everybody talks about children, and Josh has heard me say it. I view it as a tax cut for middle-class families, a tax cut. We never have an argument when we talk about the wealthy. This is a tax cut. It changes the lives of the American people. As many people here in New Jersey understand, it means you get $300 a month for every child under the age of 6 and 250 for a child between 6 and 17. That money is already a life changer for so many working families. It's projected to cut child poverty in New Jersey by 36%. These bills are going to change the lives of millions of people in the areas and hundreds of millions of people across the country for better and for years to come. Biden also mentioned a New Jersey landmark. He said the portal bridge over the Hackensack River, which connects to New York and was built during the Taft administration almost 100 years ago and considered state of the art at the time, has now been called something different. Biden added a choke point, a bottleneck and Achilles heel of the entire Northeast Corridor. And re relating to the earlier story about the uh, Extinction Rebellion protests on the FDR Drive, you can hear Extinction Rebellion Radio on WBAI at 6.30 p.m. Tuesday, right after the news. This week, their guest is Buffalo mayoral candidate India Walton. She's a Democratic Socialist. And in more protest news, a two-week sit-in by students at Howard University continues today. The Blackburn Hall occupation is sparked by complaints that Howard's administration has failed to deal with mold in the dorms and lack of student participation with the school's board of trustees. Jasmine is a student at Howard. We spoke to her from basically a tent city outside of the dorm. She says the conditions in the dorm are unbearable. The Blackburn Takeover team has been protesting Howard University and actively occupying the Blackburn building for, it's going to be two weeks on Tuesday. 
We have four demands. Our first demand is just to have a town hall with President Frederick. Our second demand is to have our student affiliate trustee positions reinstated onto the board permanently as they were removed this summer. Our third demand is to have a comprehensive housing plan given to us by administration to promote transparency and to also see their solution of fixing the mold in the dorms and the water damage in the dorms that are actively making students sick. And our fourth demand is to have legal and academic immunity. What's the situation in the dorms? Why did people feel they had to uh, move to a drastic action? I can tell you personally, I've been sick for the last two months because of the mold in my dorms and my expired air filters in my air vents. I've told multiple people, I've tried to tell my RA, I've tried to tell my building manager to no avail. I'm not the only student who's experienced this. There are a lot of cases of mold on campus. The university is trying to throw out the number 34, 34 mold cases. I can tell you from the testimony of two RAs in the freshman girls dorm that they have more than 34 cases in between the two floors that they run. And that's just in one building and one dormitory. We have to move to such drastic action because the university actively tries to gaslight us into believing that it's not mold, it's mildew, or they try to give other excuses. This is the first time I've actually seen that the university has admitted that there is mold on campus, and that was in light of the protest and in light of the sit-in. We have to move to such drastic action because we are actively ignored by the university. One way we're ignored is our student trustee positions removed from the board, so now we don't have a voice in the board of trustees for our university. What are the board of trustees? What is the student voice? Why did they remove that? The explanation the university gave was very poor. They said it was to make a, a more fiduciary board, to make it all about money. I don't really understand why that would require student removal and faculty removal and alumni removal. The school receives a lot of donations from alumni. The faculty get paid by the university, and I'm paying $50,000 in tuition. I don't really understand why we shouldn't be in the conversation about money and how our money is spent. Howard really receives a lot of funding from the government and from outside sources and private donors. We actually just received a donation from McKinsey Bezos for $40 million, and we haven't seen a single cent of it. Right now, Blackburn, the building we're occupying, is supposed to be a student center. It hasn't been renovated for the last seven years, as have a lot of buildings on campus. And there are a lot of buildings that have been sitting run down for 10-plus years. Yet we're in a housing shortage. There are a lot of upperclassmen who can't find on-campus housing or off-campus housing. So they're homeless. Homeless at Howard is a pretty much a running punchline with a lot of the upperclassmen. And even freshmen and sophomores, there are some sophomores who are off-campus. There are some freshmen who are off-campus because they couldn't receive housing. What happens next? We won't be leaving this building until our demands are met. President Frederick or the board have yet to um, even come to try to speak to us, even come to the table. Our demands aren't demanding. They're very simple. All we're asking is to simply speak to President Frederick. We're asking to speak to the board. We're asking to have our voices heard. Howard loves to say that they're creating leaders at the university. When we actively protest the university and we lead a fight against the university, they stand on our backs and they try to silence us. That is Jasmine. She's a student at Howard University. Howard University is a private, federally chartered, historically black research university in Washington, D.C., and accredited by the Middle States Commission on Higher Education. And thousands of pages of internal documents provided to Congress by a former Facebook employee depict an internally conflicted company where data on the harms it causes is abundant, but solutions, much less the will to act on them, are halting at best. Among the revelations, young adults engage with Facebook far less than their older cohorts, seeing it as an outdated network with irrelevant content that provides limited value for them. That's according to a 2020 internal document that says young 
people consider Facebook boring, misleading, and negative. Facebook has pushed for higher use growth outside the United States and Western Europe, but as it expanded into less familiar parts of the world, the company systematically failed to address or even anticipate the unintended consequences of signing up millions of new users without also providing staff and systems to identify and limit the spread of hate speech, misinformation, and calls to violence. In Afghanistan and Myanmar, for example, extremist language has flourished due to a systematic lack of language support for content moderation, whether that's human or artificial intelligence driven. In Myanmar, it has been linked to atrocities committed against the country's minority Rohingya Muslim population. And today is the 50th anniversary of the admission of China to the United Nations. It was after 26 tries that the world's most populous nation was admitted to the world body. The resolution allowing China in also had a provision to kick Taiwan out. The island, a province of China, had been seized by anti-communist guerrillas and was recognized as illegal Chinese government until 1971. Now, China has the world's second largest economy behind the United States and expected to become the number one economy in the world within a short time span. China also has a growing military force and has set the goal of one day regaining Taiwan as part of China. Meanwhile, the White House has announced that a trove of remaining records concerning the assassination of former President John F. Kennedy will not be released as planned due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Congress declared in 1992 that all government records surrounding Kennedy's assassination should be eventually disclosed to enable the public to become fully informed about the history surrounding the assassination. But part of that law also says the release of the records can be postponed if disclosure would cause identifiable harm to military intelligence, law enforcement, or foreign operations. The government says because of COVID, it needs more time to make sure there's no harm in releasing the documents. But researcher Jefferson Morley, author of the soon-to-be-published book Scorpion's Dance about the connections between the JFK assassination and the Watergate scandal a decade later, says a lawsuit has been filed because of the delay in releasing the paper. Papers. Second time that the CIA and the FBI have delayed releasing the last of their JFK assassination files. They were supposed to do so in 2017, um, but President Bush gave them the CIA and the FBI a pass after meeting with Mike Pompeo, then CIA director, and Chris Wray, FBI director. Trump agreed to their demands to keep withholding some 15,000 documents. So the people who care about the JFK story were hoping that well, most of those documents would become public now. That's an extraordinarily large number of documents that contain different levels of redaction. Some might just have one word omitted. Some might have several pages deleted for reasons of national security, things like that. The law is very clear. All those redactions should come off and all of these records should be made public so that we have the full record of the assassination of the 35th president. And we simply don't have that yet. And this... This latest delay was is more than disappointing. It's almost insulting because it's really they flouted the law twice now. The law, the deadlines in the law were very clear. All of this stuff should have been made public four years ago. What they said on Friday was, due to COVID, we couldn't get around to finishing it. So, you know, the idea that at this late date, after four years, the excuse is the COVID dog ate my homework. You know, that's pretty lame. And if it's not lame, it's an insult. It's, it's deliberately sending the message that we have no intention of obeying the law in this case. So 
that's where we stand right now. These papers are not being redacted or being withheld because of the content of them, because of the security content, but because they just didn't have time to get around to uh, vetting them all? That's the claim, which is ridiculous. The CIA knows very well the security content of these files. In most cases, there is none. The information that is contained may be embarrassing to the agency politically, but it, it, the release of the information will in no way threaten the safety of the American people or any individual or any secret agent. Do you have some rough idea of what's in these documents? The most sensitive material in these records concern key issues in the assassination. CIA operations around the supposed assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, surveillance techniques that were used to detect his presence in Mexico City before the assassination, the identity of senior CIA officers who knew about Oswald before the assassination were in a position to manipulate him. There's a lot of trivial information that is being withheld. There's some very serious information that's being withheld. A lot's been released. How much has been released in comparison to what's been withheld? Since the mid-1990s, since 1991, Congress passed a law, the JFK Records Act, saying all JFK records had to be made public by U.S. government agencies. A huge body of records came into public view for the first time, and we learned a lot about the assassination, a lot which, in my view, undermines the official theory of a lone gunman. A lot of new information has come in. Now the JFK Records Collection is about 319,000 documents in it, several million pages of material. Probably about 95% of that, 96% of that has been made public. There's 5% of the collection still has some redaction in them. Like most of the record might be made public, just have a line or a name or a whole page that's still redacted. Jerison Morley, he's the author of the soon-to-be-released Scorpion's Dance about the connections between the JFK assassination and the Watergate scandal. Release of the papers might be postponed until December 2022. In 2017, former President Donald Trump pledged to release all the remaining documents on the Kennedy assassination, but in 2018, he reversed course and delayed the release, citing national security concerns. And in more news resolving regarding the uh, John F. Kennedy and the president, 35th President of the United States, who was assassinated in 1963. This week in 1962, the world came closer to the brink of nuclear war than it's ever been. It's called the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's often been called the beginning of nuclear disarmament between the then superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States. President Kennedy is lauded as a peacemaker who forced his counterpart, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, to blink while putting the two nations on the road to peace talks. But American University professor Peter Kuznick, who is also screenwriter for Oliver Stone's film JFK about the assassination of Kennedy, says the history is more complex. Well, I would say that Kennedy was both a hero and a zero at the same time. Uh, he did br help bring the world to the brink of disaster, Armageddon, annihilation, but he also did everything he could to prevent that from happening. So I, I would say that Kennedy and Khrushchev both deserve a lot of credit for resolving a crisis that the two of them helped create in the first place. So uh, uh, Kennedy's role is, is fascinating and because he was often the only one in the room who was arguing for a non-military solution. The Joint Chiefs of Staff were pressing him to 
bomb the missile sites and to invade. But it wasn't only them, it was many of his civilian advisors. And it was also some of the former government officials, people like Paul Nitze, President Eisenhower, uh, Dean Acheson, were all pushing him to bomb the missile sites and to invade. And he was often the only one who, even his brother has whitewashed his own role. Robert Kennedy comes out as sounding like a dove in his book, 13 Days. But at the time, he was an ambivalent figure and often sided with the Hawks. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, I consider Kennedy a hero. The fact that we're here today having this discussion is largely due to Kennedy's wisdom and refusal to go along with the military with the terrible advice they were giving him. However, Kennedy did help create the situation that induced Khrushchev to put those missiles there in the first place, which was an absolutely reckless thing, and even more reckless if we consider the way Khrushchev did it. First of all, he had promised Kennedy that no offensive weapons would be going to be put in Cuba at, at that time. But then he did not announce to the world the fact that the missiles were there, that they were armed, uh, the nuclear warheads were there, and that they had also put a hundred battlefield nuclear weapons there. Khrushchev was holding off for November 7th, the 45th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, to make his big announcement. I mean, McNamara said that he thought there were 10,000 Soviet military personnel and 100,000 armed Cubans. He later found out that there were between 42 and 43,000. There were 270,000 armed Cubans. He then raised the number of American dead in an invasion to 25,000. It was not till 30 years later at a conference in Havana that he found out that there were also 100 battlefield nuclear weapons in, in Cuba that would very possibly have been used. He then raised the number to 100,000 Americans dead. And he said if that had been the case, then the U.S. would have taken out Cuba for certain and very likely nuclear war with the Soviet Union. Evil has brought about some good. I've heard similar things said about Trump, about nukes, that Trump, he really got more attention than ever before that one man, the president, has total control over the nuclear arsenal. Trump, on his own authority, had the ability to launch nuclear strikes. We don't know if the Joint Chiefs would have resisted. We know that there was a lot of discussion that they should resist, but we don't know if that would have happened. That's just an irrational situation. We now are in a situation in which two people, Vladimir Putin and Joseph Biden, each have veto power over the continuing existence of life on our planet. Even if there was a limited nuclear war, that would create partial nuclear winter and could lead to up to 2 billion deaths. Whereas climate change may doom us in the long run, it's still the nuclear threat that may doom us in the short run. And that's Peter Kuznick. He's a, university, he's a professor at American University. The submarine conflict between India and Pakistan is often noted as the most dangerous uh, hotspot for nuclear uh, potential 
nuclear confrontation today. Both countries have upwards of 100 bombs, each more powerful than the ones that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. And in more news from New York City, the Civilian Complaint Review Board is asking the NYPD to fire Ed Mullins, the now former president of the Sergeant's Benevolent Association. The board argues that Mullins violated the patrol guide when he wrote two tweets last year that used disparaging names to describe then Health Commissioner Dr. Oxiris Barbo and now Representative Richie Torres. Mullins filed for retirement from the NYPD earlier this month after the FBI in a separate probe raided his home and the union's headquarters. And in more police news, the city's biggest police union has filed a lawsuit in Staten Island's Supreme Court to try and overturn the mayor's vaccine mandate for city workers. The the Police Benevolent Association announcement came on the same day that hundreds of demonstrators marched across the Brooklyn Bridge City to City Hall to protest the mandate. The PBA also says it'll file a request for a temporary restraining order to stop the mandate from being implemented while the suit is pending. And finally, a rare judicial inquiry began today into the killing of Eric Garner by a New York City police officer during an arrest in Staten Island seven years ago. Daniel Pantaleo was fired five years later for using a banned chokehold. The proceedings are taking place under a provision of the city charter and the, and are held before state Supreme Court Justice Erica Edwards, uh, starting with testimony from a police lieutenant, Christopher Bannon, a commander on Staten Island at the time of Garner's death. At Pantaleo's departmental disciplinary hearing, it was revealed that when Bannon had been notified by a sergeant that Garner had died during an arrest, he texted back, not a big deal. We were affecting a lawful arrest. Garner's mother, Gwen Carr, says she wants to see Bannon and other cops involved fired. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, this morning, we had the first inquiry, and Lieutenant Bannon took the stand. And as we could plainly see, he set the stage for Eric's death. He testified that he was riding by Bay Street that day. He's seen a crowd of black people. He didn't say black, but that's who was standing there. A crowd of people. He immediately called D'Amico and told D'Amico to go over there and arrest the cigarette guy. He never saw Eric. He said he never saw Eric. He didn't see no cigarettes being sold. He didn't see any money being passed. He just seen people. And he sent D'Amico over there and told him to take whoever he wanted to, which was Pantaleo. Pantaleo is the one who ultimately killed Eric, but there was others. It wasn't only Pantaleo. It was everybody who was there that day was involved in Eric's murder. Because after Eric's body laid lifeless on the ground, they did not try to give him CPR. They looked the other way. They wouldn't even let the EMS give him CPR. And for years, this started that day, but it went on for seven years all the way up to today. We didn't get an indictment from the grand jury, the DOJ. They pulled a pen on us. And only when we pushed, me and other organizations, when we pushed, we got the CCRB to get a departmental trial. And it was not the NYPD that gave us that trial. The, the CCRB waited almost a year to get a file number so that we could have that trial. So you see, it's been going on for seven years. It's been delays. It's been postponements. It's been just always trying to sweep it under the rug. But 
as Eric's mother, I was not letting it get swept under the rug. And Lieutenant Bannock is a danger to New York City's uh, residents. He should not be on the force. He should be fired. He worked with the NYPD as a quality of life uh, employee. But whose life was of quality? Evidently, it was not Eric's life because he set him up to be killed. So he needs to be off the force, like other officers who was involved in Eric's death that day. Let's get him off the force. Thank you. And that's Gwen Carr. Several officers are expected to testify at the judicial inquiry, which is expected to last into November. And that's some of the news for Monday, October 25th, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.